law school. It's an investment in your future. But like all investments, without the right advice, it can lead to disaster. That's where Pre-Law Pro comes in. Whether you're exploring the law, navigating the admissions process, or need personalized career guidance, at Pre-Law Pro, we've got your back. Don't gamble on your future. Invest in it. Get started today at prelawpro.com. How can I make myself more competitive? How do I build my network? I want my career to go to the next level, but I don't really know where to start. I hate the job I am in. What else can I do? I want to work in healthcare, but I don't want to be a doctor. I need connections in a new industry. Where should I start? Whether you're a college student trying to decide on a career path, a young professional trying to develop their career, or maybe you're in the mid to late stages of your own professional journey and you're looking for a new challenge, or maybe you're facing an unexpected job search. Whoever you are, wherever you are, welcome to The Professionist's Podcast. And together, let's find your fit. Welcome to another episode of The Professionist Podcast, where we profile a variety of career paths, explore the career journeys of seasoned professionals and entrepreneurs, and we look at ways that you can become the best professional you've always sought to be. In this week's episode, we're going to hear from a former college athlete, a keen golfer and cyclist who once rode from Chicago to Milwaukee, Wisconsin for fun. When he isn't swinging his clubs or on his bike, he's appreciating Chicago's finest house music, and he is the founder and principal recruiter of Chicago technical firm Talent Cookbook. Welcome, Jason Dingy. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Ben. If, if you're interested in finding out more about Talent Cookbook or Jason as we go through the episode, go ahead and head on over to www.talentcookbook.io. Uh, go ahead and also give them a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and of course on LinkedIn. And you can find Jason as well on both LinkedIn and Twitter at Jason Dingy. It's great to have you on, Jason. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. You've got an interesting an interesting journey that I think a lot of people, especially those with an entrepreneurial bent, are going to find quite interesting. Did you always have a desire to, to be your own boss and start your own business? Yeah, I think it's one of the weirdest things ever from as young as I can remember. I always wanted to be to, to, to do some sort of a business, right? I didn't know what business administration was, but when I was in middle school, one of my friend's dads uh, was talking about like, oh, you know, when I was your age, I was thinking about college and I went, you know, I had my undergrad was business administration. I was like, I don't know what that is, but that's going to be my major. So from like <laughs> sixth or seventh grade, I knew that that was what it was going to be. I've always been entrepreneurial by nature. Actually, when I was in uh, second second grade, I had my we got our first PC computer, Gateway two thousand or something like that, and I and I printed off on paint a menu for like an at home restaurant that I gave to my brothers, and I had my mom buy the ingredients, and I would like then charge my brothers for the food. So <laughs> I've always wanted to be my own boss. I've always wanted to be entrepreneurial. Or I was I've always been entrepreneurial, but. The recruiting piece didn't really start until about five years ago. And, and like most recruiters, you kind of just fall into it. So you did business administration at, at college. And yeah. what I mean, business administration, business management, it's all just general business with, you know, management, marketing, uh, entrepreneurship, you, you know, things of like, like that. General, general grounding. For sure, yep. yeah. And when people were like, oh, I, di I didn't even know what I was going to be a month leading up to graduation, but I just networked and hustled and hustled. And I was like, I just want to do something in sales and marketing, sales and marketing, sales and marketing. Because that's what all of my friends were you know, supposed to do. Or yeah. that's what all of my friends in the business classes were doing. But I didn't know what that meant. Yeah, I'd like to explore that hustle and that networking process with you in, in a second, actually, because I think... A lot of people know they're supposed to be doing it, but they don't always know how or where to start. What was the college experience like for you? Because being a collegiate athlete, I mean, it's a huge, people forget, it's a massive demand on your time. You've got to be at practice, you're traveling. Like, how did you find that experience? And was it was it hard to focus on getting prepared for, for professional life afterwards and, and finding the time to develop the knowledge and the skills you needed? Yeah. So my university was about an hour and 15 minutes away from where I grew up. So that was nice where it was far enough to where I could get away from 
you know, the, the city that I grew up in and, and kind of, you know, start my collegiate life. Uh, but it was also close enough to where I could go home and, and kind of like uh, unwind during weekends and stuff like that. My university, Spring Arbor University in Spring Arbor, uh, Southern Michigan, it's a pretty small private school. And so it honestly, it truly felt like a community. And so it was really easy, like the professors knew your name. Uh, even professors you didn't have, they knew your name. You were you were walking on campus, and you know you're like, hey, I'm on the golf team, and like they already knew my schedule that I wasn't going to be in, and so that that made the college experience not only enjoyable but you know an easy easy transition from you know college golf to school golf school that sort of thing, and I think that that kind of community served me well because. Instead of like going to a large university where like you might not know anyone, I like you kind of had to like be friends with everyone and like network and chat with people. And, you know, people introduced you to internships that they had the year previously and, and things like that. So, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what, what we say here on the podcast is find your fit. And it's especially when it comes to choosing a college, you got to find the right one for you just because mom and dad went to you know, major university of somewhere state doesn't mean it's the right fit for you. You've got you to find the one that, that works for your personality and, and, and what you want to get out of it. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the best part is, is the, the golf team, literally the eight guys that were on the golf team with me were all in a group chat, both on like every single social media page, but also uh, via text. And like, it's, and, and I think that, that that sense of community and being at kind of a smaller place served me really well. And it's just a testament that you know, the eight guys that just happened to be my team members over the four years were all still in contact and all good friends. And That's awesome. Standing up in each other's weddings and, and things like that. That's cool. I want to circle back to something you said a little earlier. So as you're coming up on graduation, you know that you want to do something in sales and marketing. But one of the things you said was you networked and you hustled. And I work a lot with college students and professionals who are either looking to get a break in their new career or potentially looking at shifting from where they are into something else. And a big piece of that is networking. How, mm. how did you go about it? Was it intimidating? What worked? What didn't work? Walk us through that process. Yeah. So I think people who end up becoming recruiters were just naturally good networkers. And a lot of my friends who are recruiters, like they, they did a lot of the same things that I did. And I just thought that like that was normal. But then some other friends were like, oh, you know, it's hard to get a job. But leading up to graduation, like I knew I wasn't the, the smartest person. I knew that, you know, I had internships, but like I, I knew I wasn't the best at everything. And so I had to make up for it by like hustling and hustling and hustling. My friends were going to law school, right? My, my, college teammates were going to nursing school or becoming a doctor. Those are all very specific things that require networking, but like that's, that's at a different level. I was just like, I don't really know what I want to do. So I think the, the biggest advice for networking is you really, really have to put yourself out there. And I'm naturally an introvert. And after these networking events, I would be absolutely gassed, absolutely exhausted. So for those who think you have to be extroverted and really like, you know, gregarious, that's just totally not true. And sometimes that can come off as a bit strong because recruiters that are at these networking fairs or whatever, like they're getting bombarded by all these people and that is a lot to handle. And so sometimes just being, being yourself and just going up there and just having a chat, not trying to sell yourself too early, but start asking people who are representing companies. And I'm talking like a career fair, like a networking yeah. fair. Those are the most basic table stakes, you know, when it comes to networking. Go up there and instead of just start send instead of giving them your resume just start you know talking 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 it's like hey you know i know a little bit about this company you know my friend you know intern there i've heard some positive things i'm just curious like you know what what type of roles are you looking for and like what does it take to be successful in 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 the roles that you're hiring right and once you start with that it's kind of disarming because then they're like, yes, you know, we're looking for salespeople. We're looking for people who are, you know, money motivated, or we're looking for people that are interested in technology, right? Oh, okay. Like I'm an MIS major and, you know, also a business administration major, right? And so then you can connect with that. 
Another thing that I did, and this was before QR codes were cool, right? <laughs> Q- QR codes have made a massive comeback because of COVID, and yeah. they're they're here to stay for good now, and I'm really excited. But back in 2011 and 12, when I was really, really networking, trying to find internships and things like that, I put, I created my own website, jasondingy.com. It's not live anymore, and I put my college golf highlights, I put some of the school projects projects I worked on. I and it was just a free site. It was like yola.com, something like that. And I paid like 15 bucks for like six months to keep it going. So I did that and then I created a business card with my name Jason Dingy Business Administration and it was like sales marketing, kind of like the three bullet points of what I was looking for about me. And then I put a massive QR code. And then Sometimes I wouldn't even bring resumes because my resume was on the website. And so I would go to them and say, hey, you know, I'm trying to save the trees before it was really popular. (laughs) Here's my card and that QR code will take you to my website and contact information and resume. And whether they did it or not, that was something that that stuck out, right? Because like, as I said... There are a million graduates, and I think regardless of what industry you're in, finding your first job out of school is really challenging, and that's kind of like the approach that I took, and always, 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 always trying to learn about what people do, right? Like, we always had those friends in high school or middle school or college or like those successful parents it's like what is what like be intellectually curious like what do they do and how did they get there and just start chatting with them and and kind of going from there well i think too people really i mean grossly underestimate how willing people are to share their experience with others i mean first of all it's flattering just for someone to say hey like i'm really interested in finding out how you got to where you are but people just I find it generally really willing to have those kind of conversations. But you also touched on something, I think, that initially puts a lot of people off recruit, uh, off networking, is this idea that if I'm going to go talk to this person that I don't know, I've got to somehow hard sell me. Mm. And it feels awkward and it feels slimy and it's just like I'm going to get something from this person and that's really the only reason I'm interacting with them. But from your experience and certainly from the the networkers that I've known who are effective, it's more about, first of all, building a relationship and thinking more about what can you give this person rather than what can I get from this person. Yeah. And I wonder if, if the relational side of things, did that make it easier for you as an introvert, the, more, the, the fact that you're kind of trying to build a relationship with someone or a rapport rather yeah. than trying to go in and, and get something? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I think that's, that's a great point. And, and I definitely agree that that's, you know, that's something that I, at times was just intrinsic within myself. But, you know, when you're at recruiting events and, and you know, I'm kind of talking back to when, when I was trying to find jobs and, and things like that. But whether we're talking about LinkedIn reaching out to people or any other social media site or uh, a networking event, I mean, people are there for a reason. People are there to hire you and people are there to get jobs, right? So yeah. it's, okay, it's okay to be transactional because like that, like, like that's, we're here. We want you to come. We want you to talk. So it's okay to be transactional, but I think trying to do like one or two touch points and after a networking event, that recruiter, that company, they're going to have dozens and sometimes hundreds of resumes. And if we take it to the digital world, that recruiter or that company are going to get hundreds and thousands and in some companies, hundreds of thousands of resumes. And so making the first impact, being really concise and straightforward, be like, hey, you know, I see that you're, I know that you're looking for things like this. This is my background. I don't want to be too presumptuous, but you know, where do you see me uh, succeeding within the, within your organization, right? Mm. When you start framing it up like that, it's, you know, not presumptuous and it opens up a conversation because if someone were to approach me like that and people do, I say, you know what? I really appreciate you reaching out. Unfortunately, you know, we're only hiring people that have this, this, and this, but I would love to, to keep in touch. That's going to solicit a, or a, elicit a response. And not all, like, it's impossible for recruiters or networkers to respond to every single inquiry that's, you know, unsolicited. So, yeah. Don't yeah, take it personally, I, too, right? 
Correct, correct, absolutely, absolutely. Now, I'm sure we're going to get into like ghosting and like candidates ghosting companies and recruiters ghosting. Like, listen, I am far from perfect, and it's just it's one of the most difficult things keeping track of everyone when you're you're dealing with so many systems. But really, making that first impact where you're asking questions of what are you looking for, you frame it up that way, starts a conversation, and then. That's the best way to uh, to get going. And, and if that's your first interaction and it's only a short one at a networking event or maybe on a LinkedIn message or something like that and you do get a response, really take what they say to heart if there is an opportunity and then build something custom for them. Send them something back and say, hey, Ben, I really appreciate you uh, following up with me. You know, I've been getting around some projects that I worked at in college or in my previous job that's applicable to what you said. Is this you know, is this something that, you know, your organization would be interested in? When you do things like that, it turns the transactional nature of networking and recruiting into like, you know what, this person is, this person is, is trying to do something different and and whatnot. Yeah. Great advice, I think. So help us understand how you got into recruiting as a profession. How, How did that happen? Yeah. So my my first when I was networking, when I was doing those business cards with the QR codes and everything like that, I I think it was it was at a networking event, and I had yeah his name is I won't say his last name, but his first name is Ken, and once again at a networking event that was like an hour and a half away from my university. It was actually in Detroit, in Spring Arbor mm-hmm. is like hour and fifteen hour hour and a half away. Took a bus there and. Literally, there were hundreds of companies, and I think only like I was able to get like five or six messages or, or contacts back. One of them was a company called Microfocus that actually purchased, kind of purchased part of HP a couple of years ago. So they're a big multinational software company, and they were doing the sales academy where they were getting new grads, and mm-hmm. they were doing a 13-week sales academy, and they just happened to, to call me back and say, "Hey, would you be interested in coming in?" And I had never worked with recruiters before you, you know I did internships but it was just it wasn't recruiters it was the hiring managers directly and just basic stuff like that but it was a two-day 18-hour interview where they had hundreds of people and they basically just did these interviewing games the entire day it was exhausting <laughs> and at the end of the two days they said all right these 25 people have been selected and so on and so forth and so that was my first full-time job and that was about I started five weeks after I graduated. So I was graduating with a couple of prospects. And so I was super fortunate, really lucky. So that was inside sales. That was inside software sales. And they did a really, really good job training, giving you a bunch of information around what the product does and how it you know, supports the market. And so that really gave me the foundational training within the technical space to become a technical recruiter. I quickly realized that I love chatting to the end users of of the product, but I really didn't like selling the product at all. And I was like, man, like, I don't, you know, I don't really know. I mean, gosh, like I'm a year and a half in uh, and I feel stuck. Like, what do I do? My friends are going to law school. My friends are becoming doctors and I'm just like sitting, smiling and dialing. And so... I did, it's a little blip on my resume, but I did take a outside sales job that was outside of technology afterwards because a friend referred me, actually a a college golf team member referred me. And from day one, I started that job. And from day one, I knew it was not a fit. The previous Mm -hmm. job was a good fit, but it was a good starter job. It was an introductory into technology. Wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. But that next job, I won't mention the company, but it was awful. It was terrible, terrible, terrible. And I don't even have it on my resume. It's not even on my LinkedIn because it was like such a short gig. And it was awful. And I felt lost. I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't, you know, I was like, I just didn't know what to do. And so and so I quit. One of my friends who I'd worked with previously at that first company, Microfocus, mm-hmm. suggested that I, he was like, hey, maybe maybe recruiting, right? It's like, it's still in the tech space, but you get to talk to people. And I was like, wow, like that's that sounds right up my alley. And yeah. so and so that company is a, is a large uh, uh, recruiting firm. I interviewed in Detroit. I was trying to move to Chicago. So I interviewed in both places, got the job in Chicago. And then that was my kind of introduction to recruiting. So I was new to recruiting, but I knew all of the technologies and languages and stuff that we were talking about. And so that's how like everyone falls into the recruiting. No one says like, I'm going to be a recruiter. 
it just doesn't happen. Everyone's path is a little bit different. So that's like the initial path to technical recruiting. And I told myself, if I know that the tech space is what I want, I don't know if recruiting is, but let's give it a shot. And I said, I'll know within the first couple of months if it's something that I like. Sure enough, it was. And uh, that, yeah, that was my stepping stone. Tell us what, what you mean by technical recruiting. Does that encompass just kind of the tech space or does that include kind of engineering, anything of a specific technic, technical specialty? Yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean, I'm glad you asked because I'm, I'm just so much in my own space and niche that I, I kind of, you know, I kind of forget that there's recruiters outside of, <laughs> outside of technology. <laughs> so technical recruiting in my domain is software engineers, data engineers, data scientists, software architects, you, you know, cloud engineers, things like that. The, the people that are developing uh, the products that, that we use every day. Now, there, there is engineering recruiting, like mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, as long as there's an industry that's big enough, there are recruiters that focus within that niche. And yeah. that's my that's that's my biggest advice to anyone that's recruiting or starting their own like search firm. You really, really have to st- stick to your niche. And it's really hard at the beginning because it's really hard to say no to business. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so but to answer your question, not to get too far off, tangent but yeah technical recruiting when i talk about it my perspective my niche are software engineers and specifically people who you know develop within java python ruby cloud agnostic so like microsoft azure aws google cloud gcp that sort of thing fantastic that that's really helpful i think one of the things that probably would be helpful for some of our listeners who are either in college or f- fairly young professionals and haven't had to deal with recruiters a lot I think it'd be helpful for them to understand how a recruiter works and who they work for because I think sure. I think that gets missed until you've actually had to go through the process yourself. Yeah. No, that's I'm I'm glad you asked because there are two sides of the market when it comes to recruiters. There's internal recruiters and then there's third-party recruiters. Third-party recruiters, some people would call them headhunters, right? The the mm-hmm. third-party recruiters are you know, really what I do, right? I have my company and I work with multiple clients and I'm out hunting for people that are, that company is looking for. So that's headhunting, that's third-party recruiting. And within third-party recruiting, there are large, large recruiting search firms, like super large billion-dollar search firms. And then there are tons of small boutique firms, 10, 15-person firms. And then there's, you know, places like Talent Cookbook where it's just myself and, you know, my fellow recruiters where I've created kind of a referral network and and, and things like that. So that's headhunting, third-party recruiters. Third-party, if you are early in your career... Working with a third-party recruiter is going to be a bit more challenging, and the reason why is a company doesn't necessarily need help finding associate-level help, people that are right out of college, because regardless of the industry, but especially within software engineering, even though software engineering is a massive field and a really, really good field to get into, there are still twice as many people coming out of college at the associate level than there are jobs. But when you look at the senior level talent, there are twice as many uh, openings as a senior software engineer or a principal engineer or architect than there are available candidates. So, so the choke point is entry level. If you're an entry level candidate, mm. working with a third party recruiter is probably not going to yield a lot of positive results because these large companies that are trying to hire you know, software engineers or mechanical engineers or or anything like that, they need help finding that senior talent because there's a shortage within that senior talent. So that's when they're going to utilize that third-party search firm. So if you're uh, an entry-level candidate or maybe you're even a year or two in the market, you can reach out to third-party recruiters, but you might not get a lot of responses. and, And so, you know, for those listening, like, don't be discouraged, right? Yeah. So, so that's kind of like the third, third headhunting, third, third-party recruiting kind of model. The internal recruiting model, however, they're going to have much more control over the interview process because they're internal. They have the Slack communication. They have the email communication. They are a part of the interview process. And so they're going to be able to move really, really quickly. And internal, and it's really easy to get associate people in the door via an internal recruiter right? Because mm. there are plentiful candidates and that's that's the best bet. So if you are 
you know, graduating or, you know, trying to network, really, really try to find a target list of companies and industries that you're interested in and, and target those internal recruiters as, as best you can. And if you do reach out to a third-party recruiter, ask like, hey, I know you might not be the best, you know, the, the best fit for me, but maybe you can point me in the right direction. Sometimes that might yield uh, some results. Walk us, walk us through what an average day looks like for you because I think that's really helpful information. Is is, is there an average day at all? And, and maybe Ugh. there isn't, but, but what is the best, the best approximation of, of an average day or, you know, at least a sense of what the, the day-to-day grind of a, sure. a recruiter is? So I, th- I think that, once again, this is going to be a bit different whether you're an internal recruiter or an external recruiter. I have done both. So I started mm. my career, like I said, in the, at the large search firm. And then from there, I was a headhunter at a really large firm and worked with you know companies like Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Here Technologies, and you know companies like that here in Chicago. And from there, I went internal. So I was a third-party recruiter. Then I went internal to one of our clients. And then the game was completely changed. Like a lot of the things that you learn from a third-party recruiting firm doesn't necessarily apply, right? You have to, like, it is a grind. It is a grind at a large third-party search firm, right? It's it's typically high turnover. It's a great pace. It's a great place to start, but it is a grind. People turn over all the time. If you can last a couple of years there, like, you can go anywhere. And it's very what's, common. What's the grind? Tell, tell yeah. me, why is it such a grind? So... If you're a a large search firm, you're competing against other large search firms Mm. and you're competing with really, really large enterprise clients where they have VMS, vendor management systems is what is what it's called. And so instead of building relationships with the recruiters at these large search firms, they just say, hey, I'm the vendor manager of the data analytics team at XYZ company, and we're going to have a qualification call, and we're going to have this search firm, this search firm, this search firm, this search firm, and this search firm on the call. This is what we're looking for. Submit candidates. You have to submit candidates by the end of the week or else we're, you know, and then we're going to interview. So hmm. that, that's been historically the traditional model for decades. and That's, cut, that's very cutthroat. It's very cutthroat because not only are you competing against other search firms, you're competing against your team member next to you because if they reach out to a candidate first, they have dibs on that candidate, which like if they found them first, like, you know, so be it. And you do have a lot of people hunting in the same pool and the same databases and the same, you know, LinkedIn, same, you know, same sites like that. So you have a lot of recruiters hunting in the same spot and it's very, very challenging. And and that's the only way you get paid. And, and this is not just my experience at the, the search firm that I was at, and, and, I, and I had a great experience. It was challenging at times, rewarding at times, but this has historically been the experience for most people at, uh, at a lot of large search firms. And it's, it's a turnoff to some people, and to some people, like, they have been at some of these companies for 30 years. So I, I guess, like, laying the f- uh, foundation for your question of, like, what a day looks like, at a, at a large search firm, you are calling, 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 you're emailing, you are sourcing and, like, sourcing and recruiting is the creation of top of funnel for candidates, right? And so it starts with, hey, we have XYZ company and we need to find this software engineer that understands these cloud technologies. Okay, cool. You talk to the client, then you go out and scour the web and figure out where do these people hang out and how can I get a hold of them? Once I've created this top of funnel of, okay, these are 25, 30 really good candidates. I'm now going to create copy. I'm now going to try to get their attention. I'm going to try to email them. I'm going to try to text them. I'm going to try to call them to get their attention. And they might not want to talk. They might be really rude or they might be really receptive, right? And so that is the life of a recruiter at a big-time search firm. From the recruiting side, most search firms will do what's called full desk. Full desk is where you bring in the business and you recruit on it. So it might take a little bit of time, but you know the business and the candidate on an intimate level. And so when you go to the, the, the client to learn more about the role, you can go to the candidate and properly sell. And when you're talking and when you bring the candidate to the client, you're like, you know, this is the the conversation that I had. So that's full desk recruiting. And that occurs at both the third party search firms and third party search firms and in internal, but internal, you're more working with like your internal stakeholders, 
right? So when you're an internal recruiter, you're sitting down with the hiring manager. You're sitting down with another employee. You're strategizing, hey, this is what we should do. And for me, I love the internal side because you really got to be a part of the strategy. And it was a grind and it always will be a grind recruiting. But you still got to see the fruits of your labor where the person that you interviewed didn't get the job. But nine months later, they got the job because, you know, they, they interviewed well and you remembered them. So that's that's kind of like the difference. But me personally now, I have to bring in business and I have to close business. So <laughs> so that's very stressful, but it's also yeah. really re- it's also really, really rewarding. So most of my days are compiled of networking with people that I had placed at previous jobs, people that I have uh, that have been my internal hiring manager that have gone to new companies. Mm-hmm. I, like I, I've never gained business by like cold calling or cold emailing. That just doesn't happen. I, it happens to some people, but I think that most people would agree that the Pareto's law, 80-20, 80% of your uh, business will come from 20% of the contacts that you've placed or worked with before. So once I bring in that business or, you know, I get uh, referred in, which is, you know, a tremendous feeling. Uh, you have to qualify. You have to work with the CTO. You have to work with the VP of engineering. You have to work with these people and understand like what type of technologies, the, the business challenge. Why are you hiring this person? And, and once you realize why they're hiring this person, you can then take that information and then, and then I source, going back to what I said, tr- finding a collection of people from the web and using different you know, trying to, trying to be creative, but also scrappy since it's, you know, I don't yeah. have a big budget and then talking to people and selling them the role and then selling them to the client and then sometimes in some cases coordinating coordinating interviews that sort of thing now today was giving two offers which is great but i don't know if they're going to take them last friday i had 13 calls 13 30 minute calls back to back to back to back to back to back to back and that was one of the most exhausting days ever it's not normally like that but it's always always changing and i think i've been rambling on a diatribe so that is uh that's my answer (laughs) (laughs) well just uh i mean that that does sound like an exhausting day for anyone but especially someone who as you were saying is leans a little on the introvert side one of the things you mentioned was you know the, the the competition that you saw in some of these big firms you know everyone's kind of fighting over the same pool of people and you mentioned that this is how you get paid so recruiters Aren't get it? They don't get a, a salary. They they paid a. I guess a, some places would play a, a retainer, and, and then everything is commissioned. Or how how does that? Yeah, work? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. So third party recruiters, search firms. You know, I keep on using that that phrase. They're going to get paid a much lower base salary, and it's very consistent company to company. So if mm. you were to go from one search firm to another search firm, the chances of you getting like a 20, 30K bump is just not likely because they're not hiring you to give you a big base. They're hiring you to bring in business and to fill it and to get these, you know, 25, 35, $45,000 placements. And then you get, you know, half of that or a quarter of it or a third of it, that sort of thing. So if you if you're at a large search firm, recruiting firm, they're going to give you a base. Any, I mean, it can be really low. It can be really, really low. Any for anything from like thirty-five thousand dollar base to maybe like seventy k base would be kind of towards the highest. But I would say probably fifty-five to probably seventy k base is is what I've seen with like an experienced recruiter from a third party. And mm-hmm. then you make money one of two ways in 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 that model is if it's a contractor, you get paid based on the amount of hours that they bill, based on the bill rate. So, Ben, if your company is hiring a software engineer and you only need them to be a contractor, I'm going to bill you $150 an hour, but the the person, the, the candidate is only going to make like $90 or $95 an hour. And then based on that spread, I'm going to make a certain amount of money. So if you have a lot of contractors, if you are... A third-party recruiter, if you have a lot of contractors and they're long-term contractors, that's when you can make some decent money. You're gonna, you're not going to make a lot of money off of each one, but once you start compounding that, that's when you get these recruiters that have a 50, 60K base making $250,000. Now, that's mm. not the norm. That's not the norm. And yeah. I think that that way of recruiting is going out of the door for technology, for business changes, you know, due to a lot of reasons. But that's how you get paid. 
or so that's the contracting model the other model is if you do a full-time placement so in that, that same scenario ben your company wants to hire instead of a contractor a full-time person the industry standard is typically 20 percent fee on the first year's base salary and mm -hmm. so easy math 100k base that search that that fee is going to be 20 20k now 20 percent is typically the standard i've seen as high as 30 35 for like executive level roles executive level roles cfo you know ceo that that type of thing executive headhunters they only make you know two or three placements a year but when it's a four or five hundred thousand dollar placement you know you've easily made your year so that's kind of the model, but then the recruiter doesn't necessarily get that piece of the pie. That's that's the fee that the company gets. And then you might get anywhere between half to a quarter to a third to, you know, a fifth. It really just depends on on the model and the company. So that's kind of uh, the third-party search firm and that's why because it's it's very it's a very difficult job but it's also very lucrative. All you need to do is make a couple placements a year and if you brought in the business and you place it, you know, you've literally just doubled what you made in the search firm and you're working for yourself. Mm. But there's also a lot of risk associated to that because no one else is helping you. So that's kind of like the trade-off and how you get paid. Now, if you're an internal recruiter, it's the complete opposite. You know, in Chicago, I'm going to give a big range and I'm sure people are going to give me a hard time, but a senior internal technical recruiter Doing what I do will make anywhere between seventy to one hundred and twenty-five k base salary, mm. and and that really depends. But to, to find a good, good senior technical recruiter, internal technical recruiter, you're going to get paid in the nineties for sure, um, or even low low one hundreds if you start getting into like a team lead role and things like that. That's just been in like my experience with the people that I've talked to and stuff like that. And then that's an internal recruiter. You get paid base bonus equity if the company gives that, but it's going to be a much normal structure. And then, yeah, so that's why so many people, you see so many recruiters, so many recruiters go from what I did, like what I'm doing is not super innovative because so many people leave the search firm and they're like, well, well, shoot, I have these four or five contacts and they want me to help hire them. Like, why don't I just do my own thing? I'll take the entire fee. And instead of only getting, you know, a third of it, I could get, you know, the whole thing and, you know, if I didn't want to work for the next three months, I could, but it takes about three months to get paid. So that's the stressful part. Well, and I, you know, I, I've got friends who are recruiters and I've gone through recruiters myself in, in previous job searches. Walk us through some of the, the ups and downs. Cause you know, you, like you said, you might spend three months trying to fill a position and put a lot of time and effort into it. And then all of a sudden, Mm. The person doesn't want to take the job or they, we talked about the problem of ghosting. Yeah, it is. I think one of the worst things that you can, besides silence, besides like not, you know, having the candidate supposed to start and whether you're an internal or external recruiter, having the candidate not be communicative leading up to the first day is always really nerve wracking because you're like, why you know, like what's going on. Like yeah. I thought that they're excited. And so like that kind of, but if you don't hear from them, but they're just doing the onboarding paper and stuff like that, <laughs> if, if they want to talk to you the days leading up to the first day over the phone, that is the worst pit in your stomach. Cause that means that they're quitting. Not only, not only are they quitting before they start, but you have shut down the job search. You have completed the job search. You are you have moved on to something new, and that person quits. And I think so many recruiters took take it personally. And I at times it's very difficult for me not to take it personally, but I've gotten really, really, I've gotten so much better at just like hey, like at the end of the day, like this is your career. And the reason why I shared to take a couple of steps back, the reason why I shared like that second job out of school that's not on my resume, that's not on my LinkedIn, and it was super short because I felt trapped and I should have never accepted the job and I should have quit on literally day one. I should have done exactly what I'm describing as one of the worst feelings as a recruiter. But what's worse, saying, listen, I'm sorry, I might burn this bridge. I don't think that this is the right fit. Or starting and then just being like, wow, this is terrible, and then wasting a lot of people's time. Now, I think that there's a better option. The better option is learning and like learning during the interview process and learning like what you're good at and what your like traits are and what the company's values are and what your values are. 
to kind of pull yourself out of contention even before an offer, before you accept. But that is one of the, the worst feelings is, is when they quit. I think another thing, my the third person that I placed at the large at the search firm, I had to fire and he was a it was a contractor and I had you know, I had just gone through you know, six months ago I had a job that I hated and I'm like this person is like you know, 15 years my senior, they're in this, you know, they're a technical architect for a really cool company, and I had to do it on a Friday. I'm like, what do I do? How do I do this? Yeah, like, how do I do? What feedback do we have? Oh, well, we don't have much feedback. He doesn't seem to be doing this. I'm like, okay, and they're like, just just make sure that uh, he's left the office and or that he's home. I think he's working from home. Make sure you talk to him, and then I was like, oh my gosh, and the conversation ended up going well, and it wasn't really a surprise, so obviously they had had conversations before but that's also not fun that's yeah. not a fun part of recruiting now luckily recruiters are the i would say the fun uncle of hr so <laughs> for those who don't know recruiting is in the hr function within internal companies right and for all intensive purposes it is hr not but it's it's the fun uncle part you get to be talking to people you get to pitch ideas you get to give offers you get to get people excited you get to be a part of the promotions you get to be a part of all the fun stuff very very rarely does a recruiter have to fire someone especially internally now sometimes if you're an external recruiter and they're your contractor and you know you go out to lunch with them and stuff like that you're like hey sorry your contract is ending that's a pretty easy conversation because it's like hey the project's over your contract is ending that's about the worst thing but yeah that's uh that, that can be challenging sometimes it sounds almost entrepreneurial without being an entrepreneur in the sense that you know you kind of have a lot of freedom to go out and get business and build those relationships and you're working with people all the time. Yeah. It, it really isn't. Actually, in my interview, I was like, yeah, I'm, you know, I've always been entrepreneurial. And I literally told them, I, like, I want to, like, I want to start my own business. I want to. And they're like, well, like, think of building your book of business and, and clients as the business. And, I, and, and it really is true. And the reason why I like recruiting, technical recruiting versus, as I had mentioned, that first job of software sales is, I believe that for a software product, you're only as good as the product. You could be a really, really good salesperson. You could be a really good salesperson and be the most technical person, the most eloquent presenter. But if the product doesn't stack up to what the needs of the client is, they're going to say no, no matter how good that person is. And so, it, you know, in my eyes, that's like, it's limiting, at least for me. People, I know some of my friends that make, tons of money, way more money than I do as, uh, you know, uh, software sales. And, and that's also a good career path. But for me, it's, you know, I'm talking to 10 different people and one of these people are going to get the job. And, and so you can kind of, you get disappointed a lot, but you quickly, quickly rebound as well. And I think that that's what I like about recruiting versus like selling a product is you're only as good as your product. Here it's yeah you're only as good as the candidate but there's tons more candidates out there and you can you can literally find a candidate an hour later now it's not typically that fast but you never know the next person who that next placement is going to be and it could be this conversation right now. It sounds like an exciting field to be in. I I love the name of your firm Talent Cookbook. Yeah. Um, what's what's the origin of of, of that? Yeah, yeah. So Talent Cookbook, the idea of in, in software engineering, there's actually O'Reilly. So the public, the book publisher O'Reilly, they create these technical cookbooks. And so for those who are familiar with the, some of the software languages that I mentioned before, like Java Cookbook, Python Cookbook, SQL Cookbook, and even outside of technology, there's the idea of like cookbooks. And what that is, is they're recipes for using said tool and that will give you outcomes, right? So it's a Java cookbook. They're assuming that you know Java, but within the cookbook, there's different recipes that how you use this package or this software package or this, this is the outcome that you're going to get. And you're going to get slightly different outcomes using the same language or using the same kind of technology stack. So that's the idea of, of a cookbook. And so I was thinking like, you know, when I was starting my firm, and I started my firm while I was working full time, and which is wow. honest, which is honestly pretty common. But I was walking down 
I was walking down the hall and I was obsessing over the name. I was obsessing over the name and people are like, why does it matter? The name doesn't matter. To me, the name, it's, it's the it's the foundation for everything. And in, in, in my world, coming from kind of a marketing background, sales background, business background, and because recruiters are a dime a dozen, absolutely a dime a dozen. I'm a dime a dozen, <laughs> like seriously. <laughs> so, so you have to kind of stick out with, with something and be different. So I was walking down the hallway and there's a bunch of uh, developers and I looked over and I was familiar with cookbooks, but I saw it and like immediately it was like Talent Cookbook and I said, oh my gosh. I have to figure out if the domain is taken. So I own both talentcookbook.io and talentcookbook.com. So if you go to talentcookbook.com, it will go to .io. And then my email is .io, but I also own the, the .com email. I wanted both. I wanted both domains. And so I also did a Google search. Not much coming up. There's like there's an actual cookbook called like Ten Talents Cookbook, uh, which <laughs> free promo for them. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, besides that, there was nothing else. And then uh, the actual logo I created myself in Paint, and I put HTML brackets around there. So I wanted to put the .io in there, bolded the talent, put the HTML tags on there, and so it was very very like it like someone were to look at it and it and it screamed out tech. You may not have known what it was, but so that's that's kind of the origin story. And then I did create it in Paint, but obviously the resolution isn't that great. So my my very talented sister in law she helped uh, uh, put it in Adobe and um, you know up the resolution. Yeah, <laughs> I think well, it's the I mean, technical term. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it says a lot about what you mentioned very early in our episode, which was knowing your niche. You know, you weren't trying to be a recruiter for anyone, you were trying to really nail in on your on your niche. Mm. Makes yep. a lot of sense. For sure. I want to explore the, the journey of an entrepreneur with you a little bit because we've talked about the career of a recruiter and, and how there's entrepreneurial elements to it. But what was the process like to, to start your own firm, especially while you were working another job? I mean, it must have yeah. been incredibly demanding time-wise and balancing, you know, too demanding response, but how, how was that? How did you manage it? Yeah, so obviously going back to like, I always wanted to, to start my own thing. I always wanted to, you know, I wasn't quite sure what it was. And then once I was like, okay, I think recruiting is for me, at least for the time being, right? Now, who knows? I might, I might switch and pivot to something else. You never know. But I was working full time and I always, always, always maintain relationships, especially the people that I had strong relationships with that I had placed in previous jobs before. So I was an internal recruiter post that large search firm that I mentioned. And I would still get coffees with people that I had placed at the company to before. And, you know, coincidentally, one of them lived three doors down, no joke, three doors down wow. on my, on my street. And we loved coffee. And so for those who are familiar with intelligentsia coffee, go there quite often. And I was just like, Hey, like you want to grab a drink or maybe like coffee? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And we were just catching up and he was like, yeah. So I left the company that, you know, you play me at about six months ago and I met this like really small bootstrap startup. Uh, we're only five people right now and I don't know like I know you're an internal recruiter but is there any way that you could help us out? The reason why I'm asking you is well because I've worked with you in the past and we're a really small company, right? We're a five-person company. We don't have the budget to pay for that 20% fee for a large search firm. Like is could you could you help out? And of course I'm gonna say yes. I'm not gonna say no to something like that. Like this is an opportunity. And so that's when I was like, okay, let's see how real this is. He uh, introduced me to the founder and CEO of this five-person startup, and he was previously a successful entrepreneur in the tech space where started a company, sold it, took a couple of years off, and then was starting this new company. I was like, okay, like this is real. And he knew that I was an internal recruiter and kind of knew I was you know, doing it on the side. And he was like, I, I don't really care. I'm a five-person company. I need you know, I, I need people. I don't care how you do it. And so <laughs> I was like, okay. So as I was going to the meeting, I had about two weeks from that initial conversation to when I met with the CEO. And I was like, all right, he knows that I'm not an actual company, but I still like, maybe this is my chance to, to build something. So in those weeks, in, in those two weeks, that's why I was obsessing over the name because I said, I have to come up with a name. Even if I don't have the website, even if I don't have anything, I have to come up with the name. And so I came up with the name in those two weeks as I was walking down <laughs> my full-time job. <laughs> 
And and then I met him at lunch. I met him on my lunch break, went over, it wasn't too far away, sat down, chatted with him. I was like, hey, you know, I'm telling cookbook. And then I had set up the email email domain. And so I at least had that. Didn't have a website, had the email domain, had the signature, and then was was um, had the name but didn't have like the uh, – was working on the logo. And then a week later I had the logo. And then magically the second week that we started talking, I had the logo and my signature and stuff like that. And then I incorporated – so I incorporated the LLC – Incorporated the LLC like all during that process. So then, and then on the weekends, on the weekends, I, you know, I was just, was really focused on filling these, these spots and, uh, was fortunate enough on, uh, to, to fill two of the spots. Now for recruiters that are, li- that may be listening to this, are like, oh my gosh, you filled two spots. It was a deep, deep discount. I mean, it was like, it was a, it was a massive discount, but it was enough to where I needed to start a business bank account, enough to where I needed to start an LLC, enough to where you know I had to put the money somewhere, and so that was the start. And then that was the most addicting feeling ever. That, that I mean, that was the start. And so I still wasn't in the place that you know I still had student loans and and just wasn't in the place to completely cut and run just because it does take a while to get business. And then um, I was fortunate enough to move to uh, to lead the technical recruitment efforts of uh, a really cool startup here in Chicago. And I was transparent with what I was doing, saying, hey, like, this is what I'm doing on the side. Like, if you're cool with this, they're like, we don't care. If you just, if you, if, if you, <laughs> if you hire people for our company, we don't care what you do outside, right? Like, your time is your time. Our time is our time. I was like, that's great. And so as I was doing that, I was building... I was nurturing those relationships when I didn't have to sell them because I had a full-time job. And at that point, I had a website. At that point, I was putting some content out just so people, I was having people follow my page on LinkedIn enough to where people would hear Talent Cookbook, Talent Cookbook, like even if it was just amongst my friends and things like that. And I didn't have to put the hard sell on them because I didn't need to rely on that as you know my primary income. And then... This is where the the story uh, is super super like interesting, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. But at that same company, I was the only technical recruiter, and I was laid off um, at the very start of COVID. So I was working with multiple clients yeah. <laughs> at once and working full time. And then COVID hit, and that just decimated the recruiting industry like so many internal recruiters got let go so many ex- like third-party recruiters it was really really sad obviously not just for recruiters for for a lot of people and, and unfortunately still today the moment i was laid off i was furloughed and i said i don't know if i'm going back i reached out and i and i dug into my social equity my social equity that i had been building over the last four or five years. I love that term. That's a great term. So yeah. Equity. And it's like, what did you give to them? And what are they going to give to you? And like, how can you return that again? And so I dug deep and just networked. And I went into like, high school or college, Jason recruiting of creating the QR codes and like trying to stick out and just saying, Hey, like, uh, you know, I do have this business. Like if you're not looking for full time, I can work 1099, stuff like that. And Within weeks, I started talking, you know, I got connected to CTOs and like VPs of engineering that were in the similar spot as that first client that I was talking about where they still needed to hire during COVID, but their money, like they were stretched thin and they're like, we can't hire you full time. And I said, that's okay. I have a company. And they're like, okay, cool. And so I started doing that and then the placement started rolling in. And then, you know, now, you know, a year later of doing this full time, you know, I've worked with eight, nine, ten different companies have had, you know, seven or eight placements and, you know, and that's that's kind of conservative at the time of this recording and it's just to the point where I'm saying no to full-time jobs and I think that that's a really, really rewarding experience but I think it's more humbling than anything because I'm paying for my own health insurance and I had to figure that out. I have to figure out my own retirement. I have to figure out how to pay myself, right? These are all things that you don't really think of when you're starting your own you know, company and, and things like that and it does give you more freedom but I end up working more, way more <laughs> yeah. than I did before but but it's on my terms, so... Yeah, that's that's awesome. Another long answer for you. I wonder if people no, are still listening but, at this but an point. Insightful <laughs> <laughs> I want to turn to a, a couple of questions that we've had from from the audience. If you have questions, if you're listening, that you really want the answer to that we haven't addressed in any of the episodes you've heard so far, go go ahead and contact us at contact at the professionists 
professionists.com. That's plural, professionists.com. Or you can also find us over on Instagram at the professionist and just send us a, a DM and we'll, we'll make sure that those questions get answered in future episodes. One of the questions we've got is from Sam in Houston, and she's a lawyer. She's not enjoying the work she does. And she says, I've been in the law for the last five years and am, quite frankly, sick and tired of it. My sister currently works in tech on the West Coast and seems to be enjoying the work that she's doing. Is it too late for me to make a change in my 30s with no previous tech experience? What advice would you have for Sam? Mm, that's a really, really, good, that's a really good question, and uh, there's there's a lot to unpack. And so the answer to the question is absolutely not. You're not too late. I will never be the person to tell someone, especially as a recruiter and someone who's been to a job that they absolutely hated. And you know, I'll never tell someone to don't try it or that it's too late. But what is important is. Me personally, yeah, I know the space, but I personally would never be able to be a software engineer, ever. And there are recruiters that have made the move, technical recruiters that have moved into the software engineering space. It is possible, it, you know, you can be successful. But if we go back to what I said, for an associate, for an entry-level software engineer, there are twice as many candidates as there are available openings, and that's even people coming out of universities. So if you're uh, mid-career, what's really common is these technical boot camps, these uh, coding boot camps. I mean, they are all over the place. Mm. The big There was a big one in Chicago called Dev Boot Camp that I believe it was purchased by Kaplan. They closed up uh, four or five years ago. They actually vetted and brought in really, really good uh, non-traditional talent within the tech world. There's Lambda School. There's, I mean, there are quite literally hundreds of coding boot camps around the world that are either remote or online. And they're anywhere between $5,000 and $20,000. And they're an immersive boot camp that is six weeks to like 36 weeks long. And what they will, the reason why so many of them came about is because a lot of people were in that same situation of, of that question of, I want to change. I see all these people making money. Oh, they're making over 100K and like they get to work remote. Oh, like, oh, they're like nerds. And like, I was a nerd growing up. And, you know, <laughs> you know, like that's a super stereotypical kind of background. But I don't advise people to do. I don't advise everyone to do a boot camp. You have to do you have to look really really hard because these boot camps will some of them will accept anyone. Some of them are a pay to play. Some of them don't even care and, and I know that I'm I, you know I might get backlash on this but some boot camps don't really care about outcomes. They just care about the top of funnel and bringing those people in. And if you want to pay 20 grand a student. Oh yeah, if you want to bring in 20 grand, hey, I don't care, right? And then like I said, it's unfortunate that dev boot camps not around anymore because they within the boot camp grads They've kind of been the best in my experience because they vetted the people ahead of time really, really well. And they said no to people and turned people away, which makes the outcomes for those students really, really well. So before you even consider, and, I'm, and by the way, I'm not saying no to boot camps. I'm a huge fan of boot camps and I'm a huge fan of upskilling and a huge fan of trying to learn something new, that sort of thing. But a lot of the best programmers, a lot of the best software engineers are autodidacts. A lot of the best software engineers never that are that have been in the industry for 20 years have like a classical music degree or something that is very, very you know, creative, but like esoteric, like taking like really challenging ideas and like creating something beautiful, right? Some of the best software engineers come from that kind of background or like a math background, anything from STEM. If you were in mathematics or statistics, you're not really touching computer science at all. But if you go down a data science track at one of these boot camps, you're using statistics, you're using mathematics. So those are transferable skills. So I want to be clear, boot camps are awesome, but I see far too many people who should not be in boot camps be in boot camps and they get so discouraged because one, they're at a disadvantage because although companies like Google and Amazon don't require even Tesla, they don't require college degrees for software engineering. If someone's coming out of Urbana-Champaign, which is a top five computer science school or Stanford or Harvard or whatever, those people are coming out with, you know, 80, 90, 100, 110K, 120K base salaries right out of school undergrad because they're well vetted. They've had all these internships, really, really strong. Those bootcamp grads are competing against people like that. And even 
not top tier schools, but just like a normal state school, there's still, once again, twice as many people in the market as there are available jobs at that tenure. So, but I have also seen a lot of boot camp grads be very, very successful. And that's based on, it's because they knew their competencies and, and what they were good at. And so if you are evaluating a boot camp, instead of spending that money, find online resources. There are so many online resources for free that you can try web development, something that's not super data science focused or something that's statistic focused, things like that. Find people online, try to find a mentor, do as much free tutorials as you can, and then maybe do like a Coursera class or a Udemy class for Python, right? Python is like one of the most widely used languages. It's really easy to learn. Well, not easy, but of the languages, it's easy to learn and it's widely used. So start small and see if you like it. See if you're good at it because I think coding is 80% looking at the screen and 20% typing. So yeah, that's uh, that's that's how I <laughs> that's how I would suggest. But and then if you are looking to make a career change, do it, make sure you do it for the right reason. Just because you yeah. see your friend in California, like what the question is, I forgot the name of the right, yeah, it was his sister. His sister's in California. Yeah. If like if you have like a sibling in California that are making it that, that are making a bunch of money, I think you're doing it for the wrong reasons, right? Like what. What, like, what are your career goals? What are your career aspirations? And if you don't know and you're just doing it because, like, oh, tech is big, like, big data, cloud, da-da-da-da-da, people are making a lot of money, oh, Amazon doesn't require college degrees, I'm, I'm going to pivot and I'm going to make this much, like, I think you're doing it for the wrong reason. And now, and if you do, and if you are doing it for the right reason, and if you have done some online tutorials and have tried some things and built out a GitHub and built out a Stack Overflow and have just kind of built your profile to make it look and feel like you're a software engineer and you've shipped some code and have some repos on uh, on GitHub, then I would say, okay, based on your financial situation, maybe a boot camp works, but maybe a um, an associate's degree Right in computer science, that's once again really cheap, but that might that might work well. So I would start evaluating non-traditional uh, places instead of getting a master's degree or undergrad. If you're just looking to pivot, maybe start with an associate's degree and go from there, or try something online. But if you are looking at a coding bootcamp, really really dig into their success rate and the support that they give you in networking. Because I have a lot of contacts within bootcamps. And some boot camps are really good about feeding me people and, you know, sharing profiles and really building up their interviewing and networking skills. Find places that will, uh, that will kind of help nurture and uh, build your profile like that. I mean, and also just talk to people who are doing the things that you're interested in doing. If, if you want to make this shift, Sam, I would go and find some people who are doing the kinds of things that you're looking at and, and find out is the change actually going to make you happy five years removed. Yeah. You know, as, as you alluded to. Yeah, for sure. And actually one thing, one thing that I have even contemplated when I've said, you know, like, you know, I'm, I might pivot out of technical recruiting because I think like, I think the worst thing that anyone can do is pivot is to silo them into something and say, this is who I am and like really have their identity built to what they do. And I think so far, far too often people do that. And it's funny, the more, the longer I've been a recruiter, the less I ask, the less I try to intentionally ask what people do. So and let me, let me repeat that again. <laughs> I, tr when I meet people, I try not to ask what they do. And it's ironic because the longer I've been a recruiter, the more intentional I am about not asking that because I don't want to attach someone's identity to what they do. And as a recruiter, that seems a little ironic, but you know, like that's if I if it's work, then of course I need to know what you do. But there are also non-traditional roles within tech that people are not aware of. For example, like UX design, where that is super creative, right? Like the websites that we use every single day that make it really simple, the buttons and the color schemes and who are we building this for in the user experience, like these are all things that every single person in interacted with, but I had no idea what a UX designer was until I was several years into technical recruiting because I'm focused more on the, right, the back end of the business logic, the working with the big data, the creating these like big data pipelines and creating like a network of APIs and like those are the people I'm talking to. 
But then you have the front end, the people who are actually the designers, the people that are like graphic designers, the people who are building really pleasantly easy to use apps. And there are coding, there are boot camps for UX design. And I have actually seen the people in my network be most successful going to UX boot camp designs because that is not to say that creativity is easier than like hardcore statistics or mathematics or like really, really like design patterns and software engineering, but it's, there's still a framework that you need to learn. And those people that are work on the back end that are building the business logic that are actually creating these scalable systems around the world, they wouldn't be very good at UX design, right? Because that's just not how their mind works. They're working on a, on a very much different wavelength. And so I think it's great to explore the technical world, but just don't do software engineering. Look at UX design. And there's even there's even like marketing within tech firms where you're doing a lot of automation and you're doing a lot of analytics and you're doing Tableau dashboards. And now you're starting like a data analyst where a data analyst is a great spot to move into if you're in finance or, or something like that because you're using Excel and pivot tables and then you're doing SQL queries and you're learning about SQL and then that goes into, you know, attaching those to the data to a Tableau dashboard or some sort of data visualization. And so I just encourage people, if you're looking to tech, one, do it for the right reason. Two, find the the cheapest way for you to, to learn initially to see if it's something that you're interested in. And then three, like really just figure out what else is, is, is in tech. So Jason, that's, that's really, really helpful. I think there's been a lot of helpful pieces of information that you've shared with us, not, not only on the career of being a recruiter, but some of this, this uh, career switch into something like tech, but also just networking. There's a lot of, a lot of great tidbits there for people. If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to find out more, head on over to www.talentcookbook.io and, of course, remember that you can find Talent Cookbook on LinkedIn and Twitter and also Jason Dingy can be followed on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. So go ahead, give those guys uh, a like and a follow and also head on over to www.theprofessionists.com. Check out our blog. Go ahead and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And go ahead and follow us again over on Instagram at theprofessionist.com and also on LinkedIn. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. <music>